Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison today trying to give you a bit of insight into what's going to happen in the rider market. Obviously, we're recording this just moments after Jack Miller has been confirmed at the factory Ducati seat. So it's an ideal time to be able to look into everything that could potentially happen in the MotoGP rider market. It's a very strange year. It's a season where there's no data to go off for teams. So they're really looking back on the past rather than having an accurate forecast for what to expect going forward. With that in mind, Neil, Ducati signing Jack Miller is a very little surprise. It's been something that's stood out for a long time. But now it is one of the dominoes that's fallen into place. Yeah, I think you're right, Steve. It's probably the the least surprising news of uh, 2020 so far. I think um, looking back to towards the end of last year of Valencia, the whole kerfuffle about Ducati maybe internally reorganizing the riders. Miller was touted then as being uh, a factory rider, perhaps even in 2020. That didn't pan out that way. But I think uh, with his recent progress uh, over the last 12 months, he's definitely taken a massive step forward um, in terms of his speed, in terms of his consistency. And uh, I think, yeah, he looks like a natural fit. He's got youth on his side he's just 25 years old um he is one for the future and for the present and uh yeah i think it's uh, it's a sign move from ducati and david obviously for miller this is a move that's been stood out for a long time if you remember back to last season the whole way through the year it was always talked that jack miller was being seen as that future prospect for ducati even when we went to valencia at the final round of the year every night it seemed that we were waiting for an announcement that Petrucci was sacked and Miller was going to be brought in to the factory seat for 2020. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you had the confounding factor of, uh, of Joanne Zarco and they, who they really wanted to sign and they they needed to, to make space for. So the plan was uh, initially to put Zarco into the Pramac team, uh, move, promote uh, Miller into the factory team and then demote uh, Petrucci down into the Avintia team. Uh, that didn't work out in the end. Um, but as for Miller, I mean, you know, this has been coming for a while also. You could see it in the way that Ducati basically trusted uh, Miller to help develop the bike. It was Miller who uh, uh, first used the whole shot device back in Mutegi in 2018. It was Miller who first uh, got hold of the, the, the shapeshifter device, the thing, the, 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 lever which squats the rear of the bike which he first used in Thailand in Buriram uh, last year so uh, yeah and uh, you know five five podiums I think he had last year that's it, it, it it's a natural progression and we saw it also a little bit with uh, you know Fabio Quartararo Quartararo has a good first season and gets promoted to the factory team that's that's what that's why you have a junior team and uh, Neil for Jack Miller obviously the expectation now is at this stage of his career, he's ready to really kick on. The end of last year looked like he was really making all that progress and any of the talk linking him with Petrucci's seat for this season was very much warranted. He looked like he had the potential to be able to consistently challenge at the front, be on the podium regularly and try and win races on the Ducati. And obviously once he goes to the factory seat, he now has to become the team leader. He has to win races and challenge for that championship. Yep, absolutely, Steve. Uh, he has to, to step up and uh, basically be fighting with Davizioso each weekend. Uh, he has to kind of continue where he uh, where he finished 2019 by regularly challenging for the podium. And then that first race win really needs to come uh, in Ducati colours sooner rather than later. Um, and I think uh, they might not be expecting Miller to challenge for the championship straight away in 2021. But um, considering his age, um, I think he's a prospect for the next for years perhaps for the, the factory Ducati squad, maybe longer, depending on the success there. Um, so uh, yeah, I think Miller still has one or two little issues when consistency um, isn't quite there. Like for an example, uh, last year he had that fantastic podium at home at Phillip Island, rode a very, very mature race, um, didn't wear his tires out too early and attacked late on. That was a great performance. Um, and then a week later we went to Sepang and Miller was telling us throughout the weekend that he felt the podium challenge was possible and uh, didn't quite work out in the race. He uh, was basically unable to really explain what quite happened with uh, with his front tire temperature. And um, that seemed like just a small little snapshot. Within seven days, you basically had the very best of Miller at the moment. And then some of those inconsistency issues that have played a part or been a factor in his, in his MotoGP career to date. But saying that, he is still young. He is still learning. And I think he's only going to get better from here. Yeah, and David, obviously, this is Jack Miller's sixth season in the Premier class. And 
it's still easy for people to look back at and think about the step that he made from Moto3 to MotoGP. But at this stage of his career, it's it's completely irrelevant that he skipped Moto2. He's now just a fully-fledged MotoGP rider, has all the experience that's needed. And as Neil said, just ironing out those small inconsistencies and just getting across the line to win another race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you certainly saw in his first season in, the, in MotoGP that he struggled um, uh, to, I mean, with with maturity issues, to be perfectly frank, you know, he was not um, he was not training as hard as he should have been. Uh, he, he was expecting it to be much easier than it was. I think he was surprised at how hard it was. Um, he was lucky in that uh, Cal Crutchlow took him under his wing, and they really, you know, they've they've become they've been become good friends and uh, Miller has turned himself around completely. He's now, you know, much more focused on training, much more serious about winning. Uh, But I think one point about uh, the choice of um, Miller, we have Andrea Dovizioso, who is, uh, you know, currently with Ducati. Um, He is, I think, 33, 34. uh, 34. yeah, 34. There you go. Petrucci is 30. If they'd have kept him, they would have had quite an old team. Um, having Miller move up is 25. That's a long time. You know, he's got, he's got sort of 10 years potential ahead of him. And if he is, if he could be, be as successful as Ducati, um, expect he is a project for the future. I think it, it really feels like there is this shift to younger riders. Yeah. And, uh, Neil, obviously for any of the younger riders, They've seen Marquez in 2013 come through, win a championship. They've seen Quattararo last year. The precedent has been set that the factories have to look young now as well. So just in this era, and particularly this year, when we don't have any races up to now in the Premier class, it becomes very difficult for teams to be able to try and find that next talent. So for someone like Ducati, Jack Miller's a much safer pair of hands rather than looking elsewhere. Yep, I think so, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, Miller, if you look at 2018, his first year with Ducati, wasn't all that hot. I mean, uh, I think he was uh, maybe quite disappointed. He was probably expecting a bit more himself. Um, it did take him that that kind of year to get, uh, well, not just to, to get the bike, basically the same bike as the factory team, but uh, also just to, to get used to it and get up to speed um, and understand it completely. So, um Rather than taking a punt on, uh, I don't know, a young guy from Moto2, I don't think there's any rider in Moto2 at the moment where you would say he needs to go straight into a MotoGP factory team. Um, it's a lot more likely that uh, they'll go into one of the factory's junior teams, like Pramac, for example, is, is looking at a host of different Moto2 riders uh, to replace Miller. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, probably a no-brainer, to be honest, um, because uh, I think, yeah, Miller, along with guys like Rins, Mir, Quadraro, Vinales... Those are, those are the guys you're going to be looking to beat and challenge Marquez in the next five years. Dave, looking at Ducati's situation, is it a surefire guarantee that it's going to be Petrucci that's out after the end of this season? Uh, not a surefire guarantee, uh, but that, I think, depends more on what uh, Andrea Dovizioso decides to do. In, in, in effect, the choice is uh, in his hands. Um, it doesn't make frankly it doesn't make much sense for uh, Dovizioso to move uh, because he has spent all this time with Ducati he's been there since 2013 Uh, this is very much the bike which he helped shape and build um, uh, in a way Ducati owes a lot lot of its success to to what Dovizioso has done because uh, you know he's been such a consistent voice there are a lot of tensions inside the Ducati I mean we really saw that in the documentary Undaunted with um, um, with which Red Bull Red Bull put out with Dovizioso and and, uh, about the last season Um, but uh, it makes sense for both parties to uh, to stay together there are various rumors about uh, you know uh, maybe talking to KTM uh, there have been sort of uh, rumors about uh, about Honda about Aprilia about all sorts of things um, but it takes too long to step and I think that's more of, more of a negotiating tactic than a, than anything else it's a way of uh, driving up uh, dri- driving up your asking price and Neil, for you, when you look at the situation with Davi and with Petrucci, what way do you see that falling? And do you think, will Petrucci end up falling on his feet somewhere in the Premier class? 
Uh, yeah, it's interesting uh, with Petrucci and also with uh, with Davizioso as well. There was an interesting interview with Petrucci's manager, Alberto Vergani, on uh, Italian website GP1 uh, on the Tuesday of this week in which he said he's 99% sure that Davizioso will sign um, and extend his stay in Ducati for another two years, um, which means that Petrucci's looking at, well... Uh, either Aprilia MotoGP or possibly even Ducati and World Superbike to go across and uh, partner Scott Redding. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree with Div um, that the, the Davizioso thing is, it's interesting. It seems straightforward. Definitely his best chance of uh, of winning races and maybe even pushing for another championship is to stay with Ducati. But um, if you, any articles you read in the Italian press are saying that um Basically, if he does sign on with Ducati for another two years, he's going to have to accept a massive reduction in his salary. He signed his last contract with Ducati just on the back of 2017 when he pushed Marquez pretty much to the very last round um, for the World Championship. So his standing was very, very high. And, um, you know, after the last two years where he's been beaten very soundly by Marquez, he's not going to be able to expect the same amount of money or even maybe, uh, yeah, I mean, he's probably going to be a small fraction and then you look at the, uh, the the kind of apparent tensions that are inside that garage I mean it is clear that not everybody is absolutely 100% of the belief that Davizioso is the the rider that can that can beat Mark Marquez inside that team and I think Davizioso knows that in fact in that documentary which Dave mentioned on Daunted there's a scene where he's sitting with Simone Battistella, his manager, and he's talking about how frustrated it makes him feel that people in Ducati don't quite appreciate and realize uh, the efforts in which he's putting in. Um, and you do wonder whether that, coupled with having to accept uh, a smaller fee for a contract extension, whether that does play into his thinking. However, um, it does seem that it is more than likely that Davizioso will stay. But I think there are some other factors there, um, which uh, certainly would make him contemplate going elsewhere. Yeah, David, one of the things that Ducati have shown in recent years is that they pay you on what they expect you to be. And Chaz Davis was paid to be a world champion in World Superbikes. He got massive numbers at different times. If you think back to when he re-signed in 2016, it was at the top of the market because he had won a lot of races at the end of the year. Ducati expected him to win a championship. They've paid Lorenzo very well to be a world champion. They've paid riders and they haven't gotten the results that they expect. Do you think now with Miller coming through that Ducati might look at it and think, you know what, we've given Dovi the bike that can win a world championship. He's had his chances. He hasn't been able to do it. Maybe it is just time to row in behind a new rider. Uh, I think there's definitely a large part of it of that. There's also the... Uh, you know the the financial part of it, the budget part of it. We, you know, because of the coronavirus outbreak, there is going to be less money in motorcycling and in motorcycle racing. Everyone is going to have to take a, a, a pay cut. Um, uh, also, you know, they are still recovering from the amount of money that they paid to uh, Jorge Lorenzo. One of the reasons that uh, Petrucci was signed, um, uh, someone told me, was just to uh, try and recoup some of the money which they uh, some of the budget which they threw at uh, Lorenzo uh, which nearly paid off if they'd have had just you know sort of three or four weeks more patience but yeah they were looking to get to get that money back and I think that 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 definitely plays a role I mean Jack Miller isn't going to be on the whatever it was 12 and a half million that uh, uh, that Jorge Lorenzo was uh, he's going to be a, a, a lot more affordable and um, yeah a rider as I said before he's a rider for the future and Neil we've already mentioned about what could happen with KTM potentially Davi being linked with their seat but we've already seen that uh, Pitt Byer has been talking to Peter McLaren at Crash.net and saying that uh, KTM's goal is to maintain their current lineup of all four riders. So even for Davi, one of the potential places he could go could suddenly be taken off the table. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we always assumed that KTM would have been an option for Davizioso because the bike seems like a bit of a natural fit for for his riding style. Um, also, he's a he's a certified race winner, and although Paul Spargro, I think, has done some fantastic things in that uh, in that team over the past uh, three years um he's never won the MotoGP race so there is always that uncertainty of just how good the bike is in his hands could it be 
a podium bike, for example, if you stick someone like David Tiozo on it. Um, however, in that interview with uh, with Pete McLaren that you mentioned, Steve, um, yeah, Piparo said that all four riders that they have, both in the factory squad and in uh, Tech Trois, uh, will be getting basically offers from KTM uh, and offers quite soon. Um, so, you know, KTM, although was experiencing some fantastic success, um, not just in motorsport, but in bike market in general, um, some fantastic sales. Uh, I would say that they would certainly think twice about making a big splash on uh, signing a new rider in light of the the kind of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Everyone is going to have to tighten their uh, their belts a little bit in the next year or two, maybe even longer. And, um, you know, if you think about it, KTM has a fantastic pro- prospect in Binder, also has a really good prospect in in both Oliveira and uh, Lekwona. And if the bike continues on this current trajectory, you wouldn't say that Paul Espargaro will be that far from podiums at certain racetracks in the next 12 months. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a bad option if KTM keep their four riders. And Dave, if KTM were to look elsewhere, one of the big challenges they're going to have, like Neil said, is that they need to try and find people that are going to pretty much guarantee that you're going to make a step forward from who you have. They've got three very highly regarded younger riders. They've got Paula Spagaro, a world champion, a guy that's been able to have some really strong results for them. For a team like that, that's still on the cusp, maybe a top rider makes them make that step forward, but they already have Pedroza to be a test rider to try and develop that bike. Is it worth taking on the risk of hiring a big name to try and bring you over the edge? And then if you don't get that success, it can all backfire on the project. Yeah, I think if you look at... um KTM's uh, actions, their strategy, what they've done so far is pretty clear what they what they're doing, and they're in a sense they're in a unique situation because they are um, one of the team. I mean, they are a team with a perhaps the only factory in MotoGP. Uh, well, I suppose you could argue Honda, but anyway, KTM is um, uh, have a feeder system. They have a feeder system even up through the Spanish Championship with the IO team who they're partnering with. with the IO team, they had, they did have up until last year um, uh, bikes in uh, Moto Three Mo- uh, and Moto Two. Obviously, they stopped their Moto Two project, um, uh, but the IO team is still very much the feeder class or the the, the feeder team for the factory team. Uh, they have um, uh, obviously Jorge Martin there. They have uh, Tatsuta Nagashima there. Um, they have a, a pipeline of talent. So I, I think that KTM are looking um, sort of down at the lower classes rather than trying to persuade someone across. Uh, and they have so much talent. They have so much talent that there might not even be room uh, to put Jorge Martin. Um, uh, uh, they might end up losing what looks to be like a very talented rider simply because there's, there's not going to be anywhere to put him in, in 2021. Yeah, Neil, that's one of the big things for teams and riders up and down the paddock. Like It used to be a case of there was only a handful of really good seats in MotoGP each year. But with regulation changes, with the budgets that have been supported by the championship, suddenly it's meant that pretty much every seat on the grid becomes an attractive proposition for a rider. But now we've got to the point where there's so many good riders coming through that there's always riders that just don't end up getting the chances that maybe five years ago they would have gotten. Yep, yep. And I think uh, one of the factors that um, explains what you're saying there, Steve, is the fact that maybe a year ago we were looking at guys like Davizioso, Rossi, Crutchlow as guys that potentially might retire. Um, they're certainly coming to the end of their of their career, but um, from what we hear, Rossi is uh, is close to signing and agreeing uh, to uh, do another year in MotoGP. But in the Petronas Yamaha squad, uh, we've heard that LCR and Cal Crutchlow have been uh, in pretty advanced talks about uh, signing Cal up for another year in MotoGP. And uh, well, we've just mentioned that Davizioso could be um, could be staying on at Ducati. And if you keep all those three guys not in place, but um, well, within the factories uh, in which they're riding at the moment, um, then yeah, there's there's not much space available really for uh, for younger guys in Moto2. Um, and especially seeing that there's not a guy at the moment in Moto2, like for example, Bender last year, uh, a real, we need to get him on a MotoGP bike as soon as possible because he is the next big thing. 
there's some fantastic riders in Moto2 at the moment, no doubt, but no one that you would look at and say, yeah, he's going to clear off and win the championship this year. So, um, yeah, so I think that's a factor too. I'm just going to take it as it stands right now. In this conversation, we're going to take it for granted that KTM are going to maintain their four riders. They're going to hold on to everyone they have. Davi's going to stay at Ducati. And Neil, you mentioned Moto2 there. You mentioned that there's a lot of quality riders in the class. You obviously work as a commentator in the class, so there's very few people that pay as much attention to Moto2 as you do. But when you look at that class, who are those standout riders? Who do you look at and say, you know what? I could see him kicking on and becoming a regular front runner in MotoGP. There's always one or two riders every couple of years. Like if you think back to when Alex Rins was in Moto2 or Vinales was in Moto2 and obviously Mark Marquez, there was always a couple of riders that instantly adapted to the class, instantly were at the front, instantly did something a little bit different to other people. But when you look at the class now, who do you see may be able to make that sort of transition? Uh, I think yeah, there's a, there's a couple of guys that I think could could step up and be and be really fast. Uh, I think Baldessari is a guy who has the build to be a MotoGP rider. Um, he's obviously proved to be pretty inconsistent in Moto2 though, so you wouldn't hand him a MotoGP deal right now. I don't think. Uh, I think the same could be said about Luca Marini. He's certainly a talented guy, but has yet to show that he can do it over a full championship in Moto2. So I don't think you would give him a deal at this moment. And then there's some younger names who recently have come into the class, guys like Enea Bastianini, who I think is a, is a massive talent, Jorge Martin as well. But, um, you know, those guys are far from the finished article, even in Moto2 as it stands. Um, so I'm not sure whether you would quite put your faith in those guys just yet. Um, you would have liked in an ideal scenario to have watched them in eight, seven or eight MotoGP, sorry, seven or eight Moto2 races in 2020 before coming to that decision. Yeah, and that's going to be one of the key things, David, isn't it? That for a lot of these riders, suddenly six months of development gets put on hold. And it's very difficult to then transition straight away into a MotoGP season. And if you look at someone like Jorge Martin, the end of last season, he was really coming good on uh, on his Moto2 bike. And he really needed these early season races to show that a winter had been spent really improving, getting himself ready to move up to MotoGP. Whereas now that option, in all likelihood, is going to be taken away from him. Someone like Remy Gardner needs to show that he's smoothed out all the rough edges, that he's got that experience that's uh, needed to be able to transition to the Premier class. And for all those Moto2 riders, their careers are pretty much being put back a year just because you can't afford to take that risk with a MotoGP bike at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I think it, I think they are going to be more conservative. I mean, you're right. I mean, Jorge Martín is a good example. Uh, he was really strong last year, uh, looked good at, um, uh, at Qatar, but struggled with tyre choice because all of a sudden we were uh, racing at night instead of during the day, which had been the original plan. And people just weren't sort of, uh, they hadn't got their front tyre uh, uh, strategy sorted, really. Uh, uh, conversely, you saw a rider like Joe Roberts, who had an absolutely fantastic first round at, uh, at Qatar after a fairly mediocre season in uh, into 2019 um and looked like he could have been a could have been a breakthrough and you know we're not going to know whether um they, whether Qatar was just a, a one-off for Roberts or whether it was a genuine breakthrough. Um, these are all of the things which we are going to see. I mean, to an extent, you see in in MotoGP as well with uh, with Peko Banyaya. I mean, Banyaya was brought up to the Pramac squad uh, last year um, as a rookie to be turned into a proper MotoGP rider. He had a, he had a rough first season, really. Didn't perform as expected. Um, and, uh, you know, he would have had the first half of this year as well to prove himself, to show that he'd actually made that step over the year. Uh, and all of a sudden, he, you know, he's gone from a, one of the favourites to take a factory uh, factory Ducati uh, seat, which is what we were talking about sort of at the start of last season, to being someone who, who knows if he gets to keep his seat for 2021. Yeah, and that's one of the key things, because obviously when we look at the grid for next year, Suzuki's taken their two riders. Rins and Mir are going to stay on for another two years. But if you were given the option between, you mentioned him there, Dave, Paco Bagnaia, Franco Morbidelli, Danilo Petrucci, or bringing forward a young Moto2 rider, I don't really see how 
a team like Pramac or Aprilia or anyone in that sort of position wouldn't just go for the guys that have at least two years Premier Class experience. In the case of Bagnaya and Morbidelli, they're already accomplished Moto2 riders. There's nothing really to warrant taking a risk on someone coming through at this stage whenever you've got two young riders there already, Neil. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. Um, because if you look back at uh, Morbidelli and Bagnaya's feats in their, their championship years in Moto2, they were fantastic. They were absolutely stellar. Uh, Bagnaya in particular, I thought, was, uh, was destined for uh, a really brilliant surprise rookie campaign and in fact I think he was one of the biggest disappointments of last year because it just hasn't really gelled with that Ducati yet and you wonder whether um, another kind of MotoGP bike might actually suit him a little bit more because he's you know he's got a, he's got a good bike he's got a good team around him fantastic crew chief um, so uh, in, in Christian Gabarini who's obviously worked with Stoner and, and Lorenzo in the past um, but yeah I, I, I at this point wouldn't put someone like Baldessari, someone like Augusto Fernandez, um, so, or someone like Luca Marini in ahead of, uh, of those guys right now. Um, because I still think with a lot more work and experience, you could expect or you could see someone like Morbidelli or Banyaya racing in the front of MotoGP. It's just it's about working with them and, and getting that uh, confidence and experience uh, together. And Dave, we've already touched on it, the fact that people like Rossi, Crutchlow, even Davi, riders that had it in the past sort of been linked with either retirement or just moving on, that now with them looking more than likely like they're going to stay for next year, that all those opportunities do get dwindled. But when you look up and down the grid, do you see any manufacturer willing to take a risk for next year? It's, I mean, like the the one manufacturer who could afford to take a risk is obviously Honda because they've got the world champion. But then why would you take a risk on someone who might beat your reigning world champion and you're paying an obscene amount of money just because you know he will win you championships? So uh, it's difficult to say. But then, I mean, there is a counterpoint to the, to, to the, the argument for being conservative in that all of these established names um, have failed to beat Mark Marquez. Um, there is, you know, they haven't beaten, been able to beat Mark Marquez. I mean, you know, Valentino Rossi hasn't been able to beat Mark Marquez. Alex Rins, Sean Mir, I mean, Sean Mir has only had a single year, but Rins hasn't been able to. Maverick hasn't been able to. Um, so, yeah, should you should you keep them? Maybe you do take a younger rider in the hope you can, especially if you're a rider like, for example, Aprilia, um, who are on a really fast uh, development projects. Maybe you do look at a, a younger rider and say, well, we'll put someone on the if they can make the difference. Well, let's look at Aprilia as the next manufacturer that we're going to talk about because obviously in the whole way through the winter testing, all we heard was, oh, Aprilia's made massive progress. Aprilia's suddenly going to be competitive. Aprilia's done this, that, and the other. They haven't been proven wrong because we haven't had a race. So suddenly that seat becomes very appealing for a lot of different riders. And Neil, if you're someone like Danilo Petrucci, let's say Davi stays at Ducati, Petrucci's on the market. If your options come down to staying in MotoGP with what could be a very promising Aprilia or moving to World Superbikes to be a factory Ducati rider, that then suddenly becomes very different than the question would have been a year ago or two years ago if you were given those same options. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, Steve. Um, I think if you look at uh, guys that have moved from MotoGP to World Superbikes recently, Bautista, for example, last year, he was, what, 34 when he did that? Uh, Petrucci could technically go for another two years in a factory squad, a MotoGP, a good factory squad as well, that, um, as you mentioned, showed really, really positive signs of big pr improvements uh, in pre-season this year uh, and still have time to go and perhaps win World Superbike races in two years, maybe even three years. Um, so it's not like Petrucci, this is his last chance to, to grab a, a solid or a very impressive, uh, very competitive World Superbike contract. I think he could do both. I think he could take the Aprilia ride and then if that doesn't work out, see how World Superbikes looks two years down the line. Yeah, MotoGP riders are always going to be attractive in the Superbike paddock, especially someone that's been able to win races in the Premier class. Petrucci, for the rider that came in in the CRT era to the rider he is now, is a remarkable turnaround. There's not many riders that have shown themselves to work as hard at their craft as Petrucci that have lost the weight, that have improved themselves in pretty much every way imaginable. 
and he's earned himself a factory Ducati seat. Dave, if you think back to whenever he got uh, he got his Ducati ride, whenever he was confirmed ahead of the 2019 season, we finished up in Valencia after the final Grand Prix of the 2018 season, and we drove across to Jerez, and we talked about what our expectations were for Petrucci. And they weren't that he was going to be a world champion. They were that he could win races, he could be a podium man, he could do what he's done at Ducati. He's he's not going to suddenly turn into a world champion, but he has maximised everything available to him, and that has to make him very attractive to that second tier and third tier of manufacturers in MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He's. Uh, I think Danilo Petrucci is a much better rider than most people think, and more importantly, I think Danilo Petrucci is a much better rider than Danilo Petrucci thinks, or, or that Danilo Petrucci realizes. Uh, certainly, as you were saying, like you know, we thought, well, he's going to, you know, he's going to win a race. Uh, he'll get a couple of podiums, um, uh, but he's not going to be there. What he might do is take some points off of uh, off of. Um, uh, Marquez to help Dovizioso challenge uh, uh, challenge for the title. Now he he wasn't able to do that, uh, and I think perhaps that's what the what Ducati are most disappointed about. Um, also because you know Marquez had a fantastic uh, had a fantastic year uh, in two thousand and nineteen. So, yeah, I think there is a lot of potential there. There is clearly, there is a lot of potential, especially for someone, shall we say, like um, uh, Aprilia, Italian team. They want Aprilia, uh, Italian riders. The biggest question mark for Aprilia right now is Andrea Iannone. What happens with him? Um, uh, does uh, you, We have to wait for what happens with his appeal at the CAS um, uh, against the against the doping ban. Uh, if it's upheld, then the earliest he will get back is uh, what June next year, uh, June twenty twenty one. Which, uh, I mean, you know, Ian only has actually come out of the whole COVID uh, crisis quite well uh, because he has not, um, uh, you know. Everyone else is losing riding time, and Ian only is not losing riding time. He's actually he's actually gaining time. But I think Aprilia keep Alessia Spargaro just as a stability factor because uh, for the same reason that Ducati kept uh, uh, um, kept Dovizioso for such a long time, he has been through the program the, the the process of of developing this bike and has helped bring it to the point where it looks like it might be competitive if it doesn't blow up. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, Petrucci makes a lot of sense there. But if it was if it was me, for Petrucci, I think the question is: Do you want to have a factory MotoGP ride, which where you might occasionally see the podium, or do you want a shot at becoming champion on what is obviously a competitive Ducati in World Superbikes? Yeah, and I think that's the one thing, Dave. Because if Bautista taught us anything, it's that riders can make themselves believe that being in the Premier class and being in MotoGP is great until they suddenly win races. If Petrucci hadn't won in Mugello last year, I think it's a much easier decision for him to try and stay in MotoGP. But suddenly, he knows what it's like to win again. And he wa- he'll he want to feel that again and again. And he can do that in Superbikes. No harm to Aprilia, unless they've made huge structural changes to everything that goes on in the organisation of that team. They're not suddenly going to turn into even occasional podium finishers in MotoGP, regardless of how big of a step they've made with that bike. Because when you look at that team over the last four or five years, all you've heard is stories of bad management, stories of one side of the garage feeling support, the other side not feeling support, internal beefs. And until that changes, Aprilia might well have developed a much better bike, but the atmosphere within the team needs to improve the management has to have that clear structure in place. Whereas if he goes to World Superbikes, he can get all those things with Ducati. So World Superbikes has to be really appealing for someone like Petrucci, particularly because he came from that paddock as well. Yeah, exactly. I think the the one uh, factor here that we have to remember is also that Aprilia, due to have uh, their own completely self-owned factory team from 2022, which is no good in 2021, obviously, uh, but then Grassini is supposed to go back to being a satellite team. Um, There's still, you know, 2022 suddenly right now seems an awful long way away. Uh, So yeah, Petrucci needs to make uh, decisions for the short term. And I think the short term is, are you going to start 
uh, try and stay in MotoGP or are you going to uh, take a look at uh, going across to World Superbikes? Right, short term. Neil, short term, what's going to happen at Repsol Honda? Do they keep Alex Marquez? Yeah, I think so. Probably for maybe another, they sign him up for another year um, because what are you going to base it off? Um two tests at the end of last year, one of which was uh, kind of rained off, and then two tests at the start of this year. Well, three tests because the rookies had a, an extra couple of days at Sepang. Uh, yeah, Alex didn't have a great time, but then you could say the same about Kyle Crutchlow. He didn't have a great time. Um, it's a pretty difficult bike is the 2020 uh, RCV uh, 213. Um, so, yeah, I think if you put me on the spot, Steve, I'd say, yeah, they give Alex Marquez another year because, well, what's living in the memory at the moment is, is 2019 and Alex Marquez has a, has a really, really good 2019, uh, become a Moto2 world champion. And it's harsh in the extreme to, to say, hey, you're out at the end of this year. We haven't even seen you race on this bike, but you're out. And then you also have to consider that that's going to piss off a man that happens to be his teammate, who's also his brother, um, who happens to be your only hope to win championships in the next year or two. Yeah, I think I definitely would agree with that, Neil. You keep Alex on for at least one more year. And then maybe if you're Hyundai, you then look at someone like Nakagami or whoever, and you try and bring them through onto the Repsol bike. But for next year, there's nothing to gain by, as you said, pissing Marquez off. So you keep Alex there. David, just a quick one for you, though. What happens to someone like Johan Zarco? Um, uh, uh, Zarco, I, 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 that's an interesting question because Zarco clearly wants to be on a factory bike. And by a factory bike, that doesn't necessarily mean in a factory team, but that basically limits his options to uh, either Pramac or Patronus. Now, he's not going to go to Patronus. Um, uh, th those seats are taken. It, that only really leaves the uh, Pramac seat, and the, the only space at Pramac would be if uh, Banyaya gets the boot. So, um, again, there are th the interesting thing, I mean, it really is, it, it's a tragedy that we've lost so much racing um, and it's made the whole process of uh, trying to figure out who to sign a lot more difficult, a lot more complicated. It's also made it a lot more interesting for those, if you can, you know, for those of an intellectual bent, because what do you do with someone like Zarco? I think, uh, again, Alex Marquez, Alex was doing you know, okay. He had he had a reasonable, uh, you know, a reasonable last test at Qatar. Really, um, uh, who knows how he would have developed? But right now, I think he's pretty safe, just because you don't really don't want to be taking. There's no point in in getting rid of him and taking risks and also pissing off Marquez. But um, Zarco suffers because Zarco doesn't ha hasn't had a chance to show. Like okay, I can. I've got this bike. I've, I can conquer this bike. I can actually really push this bike again and, and be competitive, uh, and you know, try and make a big step forward to prove that he deserves a seat in, for example, the Pramac team. So it's really, I think it would have been an interesting battle to see Zarco versus Banyaya. Zarco on the old bike, Banyaya on the new bike, uh, which would have been riding for the second Pramac team. And just uh, to add to what you said there, Dave, um, uh, Francesco Guidotti, team boss of Pramac, did give an interview to MotoGP.com last week. And he was, from what he was saying, it does sound like Banaya, you know, he's going to be in Pramac for 2021 uh, as their lead rider um, because they, they believe that uh, he has... The, the potential to, to be really good with that bike and in that team. Um, and yeah, from what he was saying, it was uh, it was Model 2 where they were looking um, for the second rider in that team for 2021. So, you know, Zarco wasn't really mentioned in that conversation. Um, and you would say that, well, Avintia, I mean, it's uh, it's a pretty decent team. He's got uh, Marco Rigamonti, um, Ian Oni's old crew chief. They're working with him. You know, it's a, it's a decent internal structure in Avintia. And unlike perhaps other years when it hasn't been the most professional team in the grid. Um, they have up the up the ante and they now have closer links with the factory. Um, maybe that's, that's not, you know, that's not such a bad seat um, to stay for another year if you're Johan Zarco. Yeah, and uh, when you look at uh, what's going to happen for people like Zarco, obviously we've talked about Rossi and Crutchlow and some of the older, more established riders come to the end of their careers. In all likelihood, they're going to sign a one-year contract. You've got Suzuki signing two-year deals. 
Repsol Honda with a four-year deal for uh, Mark Marquez. Miller, a one-plus-one deal. So suddenly, if you're someone like Zarco, just extending yourself for another year with Avintia could leave you really well-placed, David, to be able to get onto a good seat the following season. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it certainly at the start of the year before the uh, sort of the COVID crisis, it looked like everyone was going to be back with two-year uh, two-year contracts again. Uh, now it looks like there's going to be a lot of one-year contracts, so it won't even be such a disaster for people who are who do get stuck in Moto Two for another season, uh, because there will be a lot of seats uh, available. Because you will, you know. Obviously, Miller is on is one plus one, so that's potentially a seat which could open up. Um, uh, there will be, uh, I think, we'll see a lot more one year contracts. Obviously, Rossi will be a uh, um, will will be a one year contract. Crutchlow will be a one year co- uh, contract. If um, a Nakagami gets an extension, uh, it'll be a one year contract. But I think that will. I mean. That bike is is waiting for the next fast Japanese rider, but there seems to be fast Japanese riders coming through now. So um, yeah, I I think there's going to be a lot more opportunity for for riders just because there are going to be a lot more one year contracts than we expected there to have been at the start of this contract. So we've gone through in uh, some detail, Steve. Uh, looking at the uh, MotoGP rider market for 2021, but uh, obviously that might have some knock-on effects for World Superbikes. We've already talked about the possibility of Danilo Petrucci uh, moving to Ducati in the World Superbike team to partner Scott Redding. That would obviously have implications for, well, for Petrucci and also for Chaz Davies. Um, what what would Chaz's options be? Should uh, should he be told he's not welcome at Ducati beyond 2020? Well, I think the unfortunate thing for Chaz is that that's the only way you can really see it going because he's been paid to be a world champion at Ducati, like I said earlier on, and he's won a lot of races. For a long time, he was the only rider capable of really challenging Johnny Ray for the championship, but he hasn't been able to get over the line. He hasn't been able to get the job done as far as Ducati were concerned. And I think for Chaz as well, it could be quite good to have a new challenge, to have something different and uh, be able to try and uh, see how he does on another bike with another team. And if I was one of the other manufacturers like BMW, I'd be trying to snap up Chaz because he has that speed, he has that talent that has been able to get to the front in recent years in superbikes. I think the one problem for him is that the Ducati V4 isn't going to suit his style no matter what they do with the bike. It's always going to be where he's adapting to it. And we've seen that because... Last year, Bautista was just able to ride it completely differently to Chaz. You saw Bautista struggling on corner entry. Chaz is all about corner entry. So that bike, to get the most from it, wasn't about being aggressive in the part of the corner where Chaz is strongest. So I think if I was one of the other manufacturers, I'd be trying to snap him up. If you had Chaz on a Kawasaki or you had him on a Honda, he'd be a real potential front runner if the bike is competitive enough. And that's going to be one of the things that I'd love to see in superbikes because it would be another top rider on a good bike. And uh, I think it'd be good to see what Chaz could do on another bike again because Ducati was the first time in his career he had stability. And I think if he could have the same sort of thing with, like I said, BMW or one of the other manufacturers, I think he could be a real strong contender again. I've got a que- I've got a question for you, Steve. Um, I get a lot of questions on um, on Twitter about Scott Redding. I mean, obviously Scott came in uh, off the back of his BSB uh, uh, title, um, looked pretty strong in in Australia at Phillip Island in the first in the first round. Uh, really seemed to get on well with the, with the UK. I mean, there is talk that. Uh, Reading basically, or, or he was made the promise that if he if he wins the championship in World Superbikes, then he moves to MotoGP. But it, I mean, I really can't see where there is a uh, sort of space for him. So, h- how do you see? What do you see of Scott Reading doing? Uh, well, I think any talk of him going back to be on a competitive front running MotoGP bike is very optimistic because in a year's time. Reading becomes 28. He's already got 100 Grand Prix, 100 MotoGP starts to his name and uh, probably closer to 160, 170 Grand Prix starts. You know exactly what Reading is in the Grand Prix paddock and he's not suddenly going to turn into that potential superstar 
that uh, can be challenging for race wins every week in MotoGP. I think Redding has improved a lot over the course of the last couple of years and his consistency is definitely improving. He's figuring out how to relax into himself and be at his best. But I think that in terms of being able to go to MotoGP and beat Marc Marquez, which would be the expectation if you go to any factory seat, that's the only reason that they're trying to hire riders. I don't think that's going to be something that Scott could do. But if you were to say, put him on the Avintia, if Avintia, you know, have as strong a team together for him as they do for someone like Johan Zarco, or if you were to put him on a Pramac seat to help uh, bring through a young rider with him, you could sort of understand that as a reward for winning in superbikes. Or you could see it that Scott Redding spent last year in BSB finally being accepted for being who he is. He's come to World Superbikes where you're basing it only on one weekend. Fans have really taken to him. And maybe for Scott Redding, he'll look at it and say, you know what, I can win races, I can make good money. It's 13 rounds instead of 21, 22 rounds like MotoGP's going. And there's a lot that makes World Superbikes very attractive for him if he's able to get the right contract where, you know, if you win races, you get paid a lot of money. It can be a really attractive proposition for him. And the one thing for him is he's going to be in a very similar situation to what happened to Alvaro Bautista, where you go from being a back of the grid MotoGP rider because you're on the Aprilia to suddenly being able to win races. And the feeling that you get from being able to win races, challenge at the front, means that you can actually enjoy your training again. You can do all the things that allow you to get to the best of your ability and you're rewarded. You don't get rewarded for that in MotoGP in Scott Redding's experience. So why would he also want to go back unless it's on a surefire guaranteed you're going to be on a championship challenging bike? Uh, Steve, we saw just before we started recording that uh, KRT has uh, decided to, to sign uh, or to keep Alex Lowe's for another year, um, meaning that they'll have the same rider lineup for next year. Do you think World Superbike teams in general will be conservative with uh, within the rider market, or are we likely to see quite a lot of chopping and changing? Well, I think for 2021, the one thing for KRT was they don't really have an awful lot of choice in in so far as. Lowe's has come in and done a really good job. The deal was always a one plus one with a very early uh, trigger point to be able to retain him for next year. It was the end of May, which meant you were looking at three or four rounds to be able to keep hold of him. So in all likelihood, the only reason you have such an early trigger for your second year option is if things are absolutely disastrous for both sides. And that was never really likely to happen in the case of Lowe's and KRT. So while there was a little bit of uncertainty as to waiting to see him resigned, it's not a surprise to anyone to see him resigned. He's done well in winter testing. He's carried himself well through the course of the lockdown in terms of what he's been saying publicly. He did very well in Phillip Island. So there was no real doubt that Kawasaki were going to resign him. Um, for Jonathan Ray, then it becomes a question of do you want to keep racing? Do you want to stay with Kawasaki? Or do you want to try and explore the option of going to Ducati? Maybe it's not Danilo Petrucci that uh, Ducati's courting. Maybe it uh, becomes Jonathan Ray again. We know that Ray's been in discussions with them in the past, and it basically always came down to Ray or Davis whenever uh, the decisions were made. And for both of those riders, it came down to whether or not you were staying or going. So for someone like Jonathan Ray, with all the success he's had, he's going to be the driving factor in that. And if he wants to stay at Kawasaki, he stays. If he doesn't, you know, Ducati might love Danilo Petrucci, but Danilo Petrucci isn't the man that's won all those world championships, that's won all those races. And, uh, you know, as far as Jonathan Ray is concerned, in the World Superbike paddock, he can write his own check. Yeah, why would Jonathan Ray leave, though? I mean, that's that, that's the question for me, because he... Jonathan is now, what, 34, 35, certainly mid-30s. He's at the peak of his career. He's at the peak of his talent. Um, uh, he is. He has a team around him which he fits in really well with. He has a crew chief who he fits in really well with. Uh, they, there, are so many, there are so many reasons to stay and so few reasons other than a vague sense of you know, possibility. Um, to leave so I expect he's extre extremely well paid as well he's he's only won his championships on one bike oh yeah because 
riders really care about that. Like, I think for Jonathan Ray, like, obviously enough, like, that's, uh, that's an argument that doesn't really factor into it for someone like Ray. It's about winning. He's been able to win on a Honda, and he's been able to win on a pretty bad Honda in the past. But I think for him, it could be a case of a new challenge. And, you know, after six years with Kawasaki, potentially six world championships with Kawa, all those race wins, maybe he does say, I wouldn't mind trying something different. I'm not going to get a MotoGP ride. Or, you know, at least Jonathan, he's been offered them in the past, or he's had discussions in the past, but they were never competitive enough to really warrant him feeling like it was worth giving up what he had in Superbikes. So for Ray, maybe he looks at it and says... I wouldn't mind seeing what it's like at Ducati. I wouldn't mind seeing what it's like with that bike. And, uh, you know, that could be appealing for him. But on the other side of that coin, he's got the ideal situation. He's got a team that is based around him on his side of the box. He's had the same crew around him, whether it's electronics, suspension, mechanics, crew chief, everything has been stable for years. He said for a long time that he's felt that some of his mechanics could go on and be crew chiefs and super sports very quickly and uh, they could easily move on to to work with riders coming through but they want to stay with ray as a mechanic rather than moving on to do other roles so it shows that he's got that loyalty and even though riders are by their nature some of the most selfish creatures on the planet i think that means an awful lot to ray and that would be a very tough decision for him to make if he was to give up all those things at kawasaki just for a new challenge at Ducati. And what of um, Honda, BMW, Yamaha? Um, are they, would they be content to continue with their current rider lineups? Uh, well, Yamaha certainly would. If you've got Michael Vandermark and Top Rack Razgetti Ogda, you've got no reason to, to look to change. They've got Garrett Gerloff at GRT, so you can keep him getting another year's experience, the same with Karakasulo. Someone like Loris Baz, he's very happy at Tenkade, but maybe he looks to go to a full factory seat at the end of this season. He could be very appealing to someone like Honda, where you know a year down the road, they've, they're able to pick up all that they can from Leon Haslam, and maybe they look to have Baz as a younger rider paired up with Bautista. That could be quite a good good partnership. I think Bautista is obviously going to be one of the keys because he's going to show how competitive that Honda is and whether or not people are going to be willing to to jump onto that bike. I think when you look at uh, manufacturers like BMW, what are they going to do? They've got Tom Sykes and Eugene Laverty. They need races to be able to show which of those riders they should keep because someone like Chaz Davis is going to be on the market and he's going to be really appealing to go back to BMW. He obviously raced for them in the past before they pulled out. So there's a lot of people that could move around in the Superbike paddock, whether you're Loris Baz, Davis, as I said, even Jonathan Ray. And uh, you could end up where there's potential race winners floating around at different seats. Is there anyone in World Supersport that you think, you know, they could they could come through and claim a place? If you look at the Supersport class over the last few years, it's been dominated by experienced riders that, you know, don't really warrant putting on to a superbike just to have them on the grid. Someone like Lucas Myers, Jules Cluzel just isn't fit enough, isn't strong enough, isn't healthy enough to be able to ride a superbike. So he's a super sport rider indefinitely. Uh, Myers, I don't think that there's going to be too many teams that would be absolutely, we've got to have Lucas Myers at his age. And uh, Myers is also happy just to be able to win races again and be able to challenge for world championships. When you look down the super sport grid, Andrea Locatelli came in at Phillip Island and was fantastic. But you also have to look at it and say, what kind of a rider was Andrea Locatelli in the Grand Prix paddock? You know, he wasn't pulling up any trees and then suddenly you turn up in Supersport and you do exactly what Sandro Cortese did, which is go out and win races early in the season, show the experience that you gain in the Grand Prix paddock, and then you try and move on to the Superbike. I think if I'm one of the Italian teams, whether it's Pettuccini or someone like that, I think someone like Locatelli becomes very attractive to you if he's able to back up what he did in Phillip Island. And uh, other than that, the Supersport grid doesn't really have anyone that jumps out and you immediately say, I've got to have that kid. Even someone like Can Onshu, like if you look at what Onshu did last year in Moto3, he didn't live up to the expectations that 
were obviously sky high after winning in, in Valencia as a 14-year-old. But he needs to kick on in super sport and in a couple of years then move on to a super bike. But other than Locatelli, there's no one coming through in the super sport class that you think, yeah, you've got to have him. But it could be where you look at people coming through in the Moto2 class. If that pipeline is coming to an end where it suddenly gets too difficult to jump onto a MotoGP bike next year, maybe you get a Moto2 rider that looks at it and says, actually, a year on a superbike isn't a bad option for me. And maybe they take a chance and uh, try and do that where they can move from the super sport from the super bike onto a MotoGP bike. But again, that's a big risk for any rider to take. Yeah, I was just going to say, like we've already seen the uh, sort of the jumping across from paddocks through World Supersport with Sandro Cortese. You know, Cortese hasn't exactly. I mean, he did really well in World Supersport, but didn't uh, really set the world alight in, in in World Superbike. He found that transition more difficult than expected. I think. Yeah, it's worth remembering as well that Keenan Safoglu missed a lot of races that year when Cortese won the championship. But if I was a manufacturer, let's say I'm Honda, I'd be looking at someone like Remy Gardner because I, like for me, I don't see Gardner being offered a decent MotoGP ride, whereas you can bring him in as a factory Honda rider, Suzuka experience, lots of different things, and really groom him long term. And if he does well on that bike, there is then the possibility of saying, actually, we can put you on on an LCR Honda. So someone like Gardner could be attractive, someone that, you know, would need a lot of chips to fall his way to get that full factory top line MotoGP seat. Not saying that he isn't deserving of a seat on the MotoGP grid, but it's whether or not he wants to just be on a seat or on a really good bike. He could be one of those young riders that you could uh, make a case for where Honda could offer a good path to success. And that's the one thing that can be offered in superbikes. If you can go over and win, manufacturers could look at it and say, actually, we can use this as your stepping stone, as your proving ground to show that you can be you know, a top tier MotoGP rider, that you warrant being on a really good factory bike in MotoGP, you know, at the end of the day, HRC, they're back in World Superbikes. We have to wait and see just how how much of that involvement can can be had between the two different classes. But when you look at uh, Alberto Pooch handpicking most of the team for World Superbikes, it does paint where they could use it as a little bit of a proving ground for some riders that maybe have a rough edge in the Moto2 class. I suppose if there's one rider who might uh, actually show that path back from World Superbikes to MotoGP, it's uh, top rack Razgotlioglu, uh, who has shown a lot of potential in um, uh, in World Superbike, uh, and is one rider who people uh, in the Grand Prix paddock seem to be keeping uh, an eye on. So, um, I mean, there's absolutely no guarantee that he's going to be able to make it across, but I think it it, it could be an interesting option, Steve. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that people forget about Toprak is even though he's obviously come through the stock 600, stock 1000, superbike classes, he's also a Red Bull rookie. So he did spend some time in the Grand Prix, had a couple of years in the class. So for any rider that can come through with the kind of budget that Toprak can bring as well, it makes him attractive. And he's he's a proper talent. He's shown it last year in particular where when he was going toe-to-toe with Jonathan Ray, particularly at the end of the season. He really showed that he had that level of class. And he's only 23. He'll be 24 at the end of this year, so he's still young. And uh, you could look to to bring him through. Like If I was looking at a young rider to try and bring through from the Superbike paddock, Toprak is definitely the rider that you go looking at because he's been able to prove time and again over the last few years that he has that level of talent because even when you look at the other young riders it's Michael Vandermark he's 27 he'll be 28 by the end of this year Scott Redding's you know the same age as Mark Marquez if you want to have a chance of being able to find someone that can do something a little bit different you're probably looking at top rack yeah exactly uh, I, I think it's yeah some interesting prospects there. It's going to be very very complicated actually putting this whole uh, sort of silly season puzzle together in both pad in well in, in every class as well because the same is going to be true in Moto two and in Moto three as well. So anyway, um, uh, thank you, uh, gentlemen, for a fascinating discussion. Um, I think we got through an awful lot there. Um, uh, f- so thank you, Neil. Uh, thank you, David. 
and Steve. Yes, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Steve. Um, and thank you, dear uh, re- listener. I was going to say reader. No, uh, thank you, dear listener, uh, for uh, listening to us. Uh, do make sure that you keep up with us on the various social media platforms, uh, on uh, Twitter, uh, at Paddock Pass Pod, uh, on Facebook, facebook.com Paddock Pass Podcast. And of course, uh, we have the Patreon. If you want to uh, ask us a question, then you can sign up for the $10 tier and we will uh, answer your question on one of these uh, one of these podcasts. Um, uh, otherwise, if you just want to keep us going, uh, support us, help buy Neil a new laptop, then um, uh, sign up for the um, uh, sign up for the uh, for the Patreon tier and uh, and we really appreciate that support. You can find us patreon.com slash paddock pass podcast. Um, uh, thank you all. And hopefully uh, we get to talk to you again soon. <laughs>